They wanted it to fit. They wanted there to be this mathematical precision to the universe. And music would represent that. And uh, maybe God was just playing a joke on everybody and made it so that it doesn't work quite so nicely. Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio, the podcast for people who play bluegrass music and of course anybody who might want to. Few as they may be. <laughs> anyway, before we get into the topic for today's episode, I want to talk about the listener poll once again. I am running a listener poll over on the website at grasstalkradio.com. Jump over there and right at I right up at the top I put a rectangular banner that says help me to help you. Just click on that banner and it'll take you over to my little five question survey for listeners and it's just a couple little questions like you know, how long have you been playing? What do you play? What instrument do you play? Where do you live? Like, what continent do you live on? How long have you been playing? You know, it's, it's just very basic information. And it's to help me, as I described in the, in the previous episode, help me to just have a little better visualization of who the listeners are. If I see 100 um, listeners, well, I don't know how many of those play banjo how many play mandolin how many play you know the dobro whatever and this will just help me help me to help you because i'm going to you know try to mold this year's series of episodes in the way that best represents who is listening so if there's a lot of beginners and there's a lot of mandolin players and a lot of banjo players but very few guitar players, I'll probably do less about the guitar. That doesn't mean I won't do anything about the guitar, because if we're going to play bluegrass, even if you're a mandolin player, you need to be aware of the guitar and its role and, and so on. And I know there are a lot of multi-instrumentalists in bluegrass. But anyway, hop over there, do my little listener poll, and don't forget there is an email link there. If you ha If you want to tell me your life story or you've got a specific question you would like addressed on the show something that's been puzzling you or you just like my input on hit me with the idea also if you've got any suggestions for you know future guests for the show uh, that sort of thing just the email link is there and i do want to hear from you so let's get on to the topic of the day tuning now there's different ways to think about tuning and, and before we get into the thing let me give you my credentials as a tuner, probably the first time that I ever tuned an instrument would have been when I joined the band in 1971, playing the French horn. And there were these slides. You had to pull the slide in and out to, I think there were on my French horn, there were four slides that you could adjust <clears throat> much like you would adjust your banjo tuners. You could lengthen or shorten the pipe. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And the the band director would play a tone. I think he had one of those. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he had a con strobe tuner. But he would play a concert B-flat or whatever it was. And you would blow your horn and move your slide in and out and try to make it match. And also, in playing the French horn... You can tune the instrument by the use of your right hand, which is put up inside the bell of the horn, which is resting on your right leg. And by closing off the, the bell, you can make the pitch go flatter and flatter. You can also do that somewhat with your lip. You can just force a note up or down with your lip. And that's true for a lot of wind instruments and brass and reeds and all that. Anyway, that's, that was my first experience. So I didn't even know what tuning was before that. So I was in band all through junior high and high school. 
And along that time, I also tried to tune our household guitar, an old K guitar that my mother had. And probably my first attempt at tuning a guitar was about 1973 or four, because if you picked it up, it would be out of tune. You'd, you'd look in the Mel Bay book and there was some instructions there and they had a little diagram of a piano keyboard. So I could go into the piano and bang the note and try to match. So since 1974, I've been trying to tune strings to make them sound good. Along about the year 2000, I bought a piano at a yard sale. I didn't, I wasn't looking for a piano. I just was at a yard sale and I saw this piano. You may have done something similar in your life. I saw this piano and I thought, man, that is a, that is a really beautiful instrument. And I played it a little bit and it sounded kind of out of tune. I looked inside it. There were a couple of broken strings and some broken hammers. And I thought, Oh, but I wonder if I could fix this thing. How much you want for it? And it ended up bringing home the piano for 200 bucks or something like that. Got all my friends to help me move the piano down the block into my house. And now I had a new project and I, I wanted to learn, see if I could repair and tune this piano. I looked at it like a gargantuan mandolin because the principles are similar in, in some ways. Anyway, I got into that. Well, it turns out that a friend of mine, lifelong friend of mine, had a friend who was a piano technician and piano tuner. I'd never met the guy. I ended up going over to see him and hanging out with him. And he had a piano rebuilding shop in his basement. And I started hanging around. I was fishing for information like, where can I buy a hammer? You know, I need to replace a hammer on this thing. Where can I buy strings? What do I? And he was like, oh, Brad, listen, listen, Brad. You know, he was like, you don't know what you're doing. You know, Here, here's what you need to do. Well, after going around there drinking coffee and hanging out with this guy, probably too much, um, I ended up going to work for him. And I worked in his shop for about three or four years, rebuilding high-end grand pianos. And all the while, I was my real goal was to fix my own piano and to learn how to tune. I had gotten this idea that, you know, maybe piano tuning was something I could add to my bag of tricks as a way to make an income as a musician. Because during that time period, say from the year 2000 onward, maybe, maybe a little earlier, maybe 96, I was only working a part-time job. I was playing in two or three bands and I was teaching lessons. I had 15, 20 students a week. And I thought, piano tuning, now that's something I, I bet I could learn how to do that. And I can schedule them at my convenience and work them into the lesson schedule and then be playing gigs at night and on weekends. This would be a perfect fit for me, and I'm interested. So I got into that. And by 2000, I don't know, four or so, I was beginning to tune for the public. And I still do to this day. And anyway, the task of tuning a piano, it, you know, people always make a joke about, you know, how do you know if a banjo is out of tune, if it's out of the case, you know, they make similar jokes about the mandolin too. Well, the challenge of, of really tuning a, one of the bluegrass instruments and doing a nice job and, and it sounds great. That task is minuscule compared to the task of tuning a piano, especially when you get called into somebody's home and the piano hasn't been touched for 25 years. And it, it's not flat. It's way flat. I mean, we're talking, I, I've gone into some that, you know, were a step and a half flat. That's, that's way down there. And it is a chore. Let me tell you. Anyway, I'm not going to talk all about piano tuning here because, but I want to establish the fact that I've done a lot of tuning over the years and uh, I've, I've studied it in great depth, um, through, you know, with my mentor, Tony Terrell 
and also books and piano tuning courses and you name it. I wanted to be good at this. I didn't want to, I didn't want to not know how to do it. I wanted to be good at it. So anyway, then all along I'm playing bluegrass and, and you know, everybody knows that every stringed instrument, every bluegrass instrument requires tuning. And I never really thought about all that much. I, I knew we tuned, we did tune. I mean, if you go back to the seventies, if you showed up at a bluegrass festival, you just started walking around and you got in tune with other people. Maybe you'd ask a, a guitar player to give you a, a note and you'd match that and kind of tune and get with them. And I noticed sometimes that a festival would have a given pitch that you'd get back home and you'd realize you're a quarter step sharp. And the whole festival was a quarter step sharp because everybody didn't have an electronic tuner in their pocket back in those days. Today they do. And I'll talk about that later. But your instrument requires tuning. But there's another way to think about tuning. And I encounter this in the piano tuning business, which I don't do much of anymore now that I'm down here in America's because the population is so, so much smaller than it was around Atlanta. But I still tune. And I still tune pianos for people and do repairs and that kind of thing. I don't really actively seek it out. My wife tells people about it, and then I, I get roped into it. I don't really enjoy sitting on a piano bench for two and a half hours. <laughs> I, I don't know that I ever did. But anyway... Because it's a long process. You imagine spending two and a half hours tuning your mandolin, you know. Anyway, there are several ways to think about tuning. You can think about it in the uh, kind of scientific way of you're going to tune the strings to a specific pitch so that it plays in harmony and it matches the tuning of the other players and so on. There's that kind of tuning. But there's also... Uh, tuning of the box, the mechanics. You know, when you take your car down to the shop and you say, give it a tune-up, there's that kind of tuning. There is, you know, adjusting your instrument, moving the bridge, setting the, quote, intonation, uh, you know, changing different types of strings, neck angle, all these sorts of things. You could call that tuning, tuning the instrument, as in the piano business, I would get people to say, yeah, I need to get my piano tuned. And I, and I come over there and they're like, this key is sticking and, and this one won't play twice in a row. And, you know, so I need to get that tuned. Like mechanically it has nothing to do with the pitch of the piano, but it's, they kind of roll into the term tuning minor repairs too. And that's kind of like the automotive thing, you know, going to replace your points and plugs and call that tuning. So there's sort of the mechanical side that sometimes people call tuning. And then there's the, the sound production side of tuning. And then there is the third way of thinking about tuning. And that is tuning of the mind and tuning of yourself you know, are you in tune with what you're doing? I had this old bass instruction book that my friend Tony Terrell, the, my piano mentor, gave me. He was a, a bass player, among other things. And when he, at some point, he gave me this instructional book. He's like, this is a great book. And I open it up, and one of the first things it showed was a picture of the guy just sort of standing there with an upright bass, very relaxed looking, and just not doing anything. And the point he made in the caption was before you play, you should prepare to play. You should, you know, get relaxed, think about what it is you're about to do and be ready. Well, that's like tuning up yourself, you know, preparing yourself. And I think that's important for every activity. So, I'm not going to talk too much about that aspect of tuning, of tuning the mind. But I do want to point out in the last episode, number 50, I mentioned that book Zen Guitar by Philip Sudo. He's got a good chapter 
well, the whole book is good, but if you go to page 31 of Zen Guitar, the chapter is called Tune, because his little four-step method, let me flip to it, is one, wear the white belt, two, pick up your guitar, three, tune, four, play. It's that simple. That's the Zen guitar method. And you could whittle it down to tune, then play. So he has a chapter talking, and he really gets into this thing of tuning your mind, really. And I want to quote him here, right at the start of the chapter. He says, before playing a note, we all need to learn how to get in tune and stay in tune. And I'll stop right there. You might initially think that's adjusting the strings on your instrument. Okay, he goes on. It's good to think broadly about this as it relates to all aspects of playing. To tune means to bring into harmony. On the most basic level, we have to bring our instrument into harmony with itself. That's, that's adjusting the strings or doing little setup operations. Back to what he's saying. The majority of players use a standard tuning that offers the widest range of expressive possibilities. And now I'm going to skip on down. Tuning means learning to hear. Too many of us allow our eyes to dominate our ears. Try closing your eyes and listening with the ears of a blind person. And, and, and he goes on. Beyond tuning the instrument itself, it is also important for you to be in tune with the instrument. So he starts talking about, you know, really being comfortable with your instrument and knowing your instrument. And perhaps, he didn't say this, but your instrument knowing you. Uh, then, let me, let me look ahead here. So that's, that's sort of the two ways, you know, tuning the strings, tuning the instrument. But listen to this. And this is that mind tuning and attitude tuning. And he says on page 32, one more note about tuning as it relates to playing with other people, which of course we do in bluegrass. Tuning is an absolute requirement for functioning as a collective. It is the common ground where players of any culture can meet. Think of tuning as it relates to all human interaction, both on an individual and a societal level. And now he's really going to get into it about that kind of mind tuning. How many bands have broken up for reasons that have nothing to do with music because they cannot get along together? How many marriages, teams, legislatures, boards, and committees fail to function because the participants can't find a working harmony. When people are not in tune with each other, they add to the disharmony of the world. So that's that mind side of tuning. I'm not actually going to talk about that in this episode. I'm going to get down to the practical aspects of tuning, the twiddling of the tuning machines and adjusting of the strings. That's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. Maybe I'll come back in a future thing and really get into this whole mind tuning and attitude tuning. Anyway, once again, I recommend Zen Guitar by Philip Sudo. Okay, so you got to tune your strings. The first way to tune is to tune relatively. That is to be in tune with yourself, have the instrument in tune with itself. And as a piano tuner, I often walk up to a piano that I've been called to tune, and it's relatively in tune. You know, I hit a C and I hit a I see an octave above and they sound pretty good. Then I check the pitch and it's a quarter step flat or 15 cents or what. But they're together. So it's relatively in tune, but it's not in tune to a standard where like if the kid gets his, you know, there's a kid in the house that has a trumpet or something, he gets out and plays along and mom's playing the piano they don't match. So the first thing that you need to understand is you can be relatively in tune. You can have, I can grab a banjo off of my wall and plunk around on them and, and tune it so that it's tuned relatively. It's tuned to itself and it sounds fine. 
I might not and probably am not at any kind of standard pitch. After a lot of tuning, you can get pretty close. Uh, even without any kind of machine or reference, you can, I've seen people, you know, start, you know, and they're like, that's, that's pretty close to a G and then tune the rest of it to it and be remarkably close. And I can get pretty close like that. But what's important is that it is in tune with itself. So relative tuning is the first step, especially for beginners who are playing in isolation. You're, it doesn't matter if you're in tune with the rest of the world. Okay, but then there comes that thing. If you want to play with other people, and these days in the high-tech world, there there is also, I want to play with the, the instructional tracks that came with the mandolin instruction course, or I want to play with the jam track or this YouTube video or whatever. Now you got to get on the standard, or at least get in tune with the thing you're playing with. So there's relative tuning, which is just being in tune with yourself. And then there is tuning with others. And that tuning with others requires some sort of standardization. Somebody somewhere had to decide what, and they use the note A as the standard. What, how many times, you know, per second should A vibrate? And today... The standard is very simple. A vibrates at 440 cycles per second. So if you had a tuning fork and it's an A440 tuning fork and you thunk it on your knee, those tines are going to swing back and forth 440 times per second if your tuning fork is at 68 degrees Fahrenheit and your tuning fork is accurately tuned. There's your A. That's your standard, folks. It's kind of like you go back and study the history of measurements like you know what is a foot you know every ruler is just a copy of some other ruler which is a copy of some other ruler which is a copy of the king's foot perhaps or you know the pharaoh's um uh from his elbow to the tip of his finger whatever they're some kind of a standard and there may even be a platinum bar kept in the British Museum that, you know, is precisely one meter long and, and that kind of thing. So there's some standard. Well, today, in tuning your instrument today, it is A440. And if you grab your little snark tuner or your Korg or whatever, and you turn it on, it's probably going to come on programmed for an A440. But A hasn't always been 440, and there's no guarantee that in the future it will remain 440. A440, when we tune to A440, which I try to tune all pianos that I tune for out in the public to A440, that wasn't always the case. And in America, a440 didn't come in until about 1925, and it, it became the standard for most American musical instrument manufacturers. That's 1925. And for you Lloyd Lore mandolin owners, not the Lore, the Lore. For you Lore mandolin owners, which the Lloyd Lore mandolin, the signed Lores were 1922, 1923, and 1924. Those were all made before A440 was the standard. So, what tuning fork did Lloyd Lore have? Hmm. Interesting. Was it 435 instead of 440? Was it 432? There were a lot of standards. We don't really know. Unless you were there on his bench, you know, right beside him at his bench in 1923 when he's signing some labels. You don't know what fork he had. But by 1925, A440 was the standard. It was officially adopted by the American Standards Association in 1936. So if you have a piano made in 1915, the scale, the scaling of the music wire in it 
the, the designer of that piano was not thinking a 440. He was thinking something else. Let's say a 432. Although it could have been something else. It became standardized officially in America in 1936. So I walk into a piano and I'm going to tune it to a 440 and that's higher than the design tension of the piano makes for some interesting, um, thought experiments. It wasn't a 440 wasn't adopted in Europe until 1939. And I get all that information from a famous piano tuning book that I own a couple of versions of written by William braid white. And I've got a couple of editions of it. It was written in 1917. And I think the one I'm holding in my hand, let's see. What year was this one? 1946. It's called Piano Tuning and Allied Arts. And at the end of this episode, if if you are in any way fascinated or interested in this business of tuning, I recommend that you get this book because the first couple of chapters of it are just a great little, very clearly written description of how strings vibrate and what are musical scales and what are intervals and what are beats and all that stuff is so clearly written in here that I may refer to this book as we continue. Anyway, that's where I'm getting these dates. If William Braid White said 1925, 1936, in fact, he did say it. That's where I got those numbers. Okay. Now let's talk about a 440. When you flip on your little snark tuner, I, I don't have a snark anymore. Uh, a guy traded me one. I had some other cheap tuners and I, I swapped for a snark from this guy just cause I wanted to see if they were any, any good and it didn't work or the hoot. I had thrown it away. Um, anyway, maybe your snark works for you. The one I had, totally was bad. Maybe that's why he traded it to me (laughs) anyway. So I don't know if a snark has a calibrate function, but most of these little clip on electronic tuners, most every kind of electronic tuner will have a calibrate feature. And I've had Madeline students uh, show up over here with their, put their tuner on. I'll say you in tune yet. And he's like, yeah, I just tuned it. I was like, well, let's check it. Puts his tuner on, hits an A or D or whatever. And, yeah, it's showing in tune, you know. I play mine. We're completely off. I said, give me that tuner. I take a look at it. He's on 441. He accidentally hit the calibrate button, and it jumped up to 441. Hit it again, it goes to 442, 443, and you got to cycle, tick, 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 all the way around, then back down to 430 and all the way back up to 440. I've often wondered why they even put that calibrate function on these little cheap clip on tuners because frankly, you don't need it. Not, you know, there are reasons to be able to calibrate your tuner to a different standard, but if you want to play with the rest of the world, you know, they might as well just weld them at a 440 because that's the standard today, right or wrong. So if, if take a look at your electronic tuner and, be certain that you are set at 440. Because if, you, if you're if you not, if you have it on 441 and you tune, you're going to be a little sharp to the rest of the world. And if you've got it set at, you get what I'm saying. Now I want to talk about electronic tuners versus other methods. And uh, this is true in the piano business to it's it's true for tuning any instrument as soon as electronic tuners came about like the old con strobe tuner and then came you know other versions of these uh like the peterson strobo tuner and all, all these sorts of things and then came out the meter tuners like seiko's and korg those started coming out and they became relatively inexpensive the first electronic tuner tuning device I had was some kind of a Korg probably got it in 
I don't know when that was, the mid eighties. I think it was about 50 bucks. Might've been more than that. I don't know. People have started. They started tuning electronically and today pretty much everybody is. So I'm fighting a losing battle. If I want to try to convince you that you shouldn't trust that machine, but I'm here to tell you that you shouldn't trust that machine. So let me talk a little bit about why that is, why that is true. First of all, at a very basic level, if you're trying to tune a string on an instrument, the, the true purpose of adjusting that has nothing to do with blinking lights and little needles on a machine. You're not trying to satisfy a machine. You're trying to satisfy an ear someone's musical perception inside a brain somewhere and multiple people. This is about sound production. It's not about getting some result on some little display device. If the display says you're in tune, that does not mean you are in tune. It means you're close. And here's, here's the basic issue with, electronic tuning devices. There are a couple of issues, but the basic one is the accuracy of the display. When electronic tuners first came out or electric tuners, like the strobe, the con strobe, there was a motor in there running and timed at 60 cycles per second. It was getting its timing from the AC power source that, you know, when you plugged it into the wall, it would pick up that 60 cycle AC frequency and use it to drive a motor and flash a little neon bulb. And you could see very subtle changes in sort of this optical illusion where the wheel appeared to be turning counterclockwise or it turned to be appeared to be turning clockwise or it appeared to be standing still. That visual picture was fairly precise. I mean, you could see that wheel apparently very, very slowly turning to the left or to the right. Now, fast forward to today. You've got uh, your little clip-on tuner and it's got a little LCD display and it displays a needle, a picture of a needle. And you'll notice that all those tuners are marked, if you look closely at the markings on them, all the way over to the left will say minus 50. And they'll have zero in the middle, and all the way to the right is plus 50. And that means sense. And in tuning terminology, the distance from one note to its neighbor, say from C to C sharp, if we divide that distance into 100 parts, we would call those cents. So it's 100 cents from C to C sharp. So if you go 50, you're almost halfway. You're right at about the halfway point between C and C sharp. If you went 100, you would be all the way to C sharp. So cents is a division of a half step, C to C sharp. From C-sharp to D is 100 cents. Okay, so that's what those little markings mean. So if the needle is pointing straight up, you say, I'm in tune and I'm zero cents off. My error is zero cents. And you start to loosen the string and the needle starts to go to the left. And you stop and it's pointing at 20, minus 20. That means you're 20 parts of a half musical step flat. Okay. But now take a close look and you'll see that there are not scent markings. There are not 50 scent markings. That little LCD needle on, it's got a position where it'll display at zero and then it'll display at minus two and a half, minus five, minus seven and a half, minus 10. There is nothing. There's nothing in between them. It's like having a clock, and instead of it having 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, it just has 12, 3, 
6, and 9. And the hands snap to those times. So if I look at the clock, if it's 12 o'clock, it points at 12. But if it's 1 o'clock, it's still pointing at 12. You follow me? If it goes to 2 o'clock, the hand, the digital hand, jumps to 3. But I'm not at 3 o'clock yet. But 2 o'clock is far enough, and it says, well, we'll call that 3. Then I get to 3, and it points at 3. Then I get to 4, and it's still pointing at 3. If I move all the way down to 5 o'clock, it'll snap to 6. So that's what's happening in your display. The display is not precise enough. There aren't enough tiny, tiny, tiny little um, indicators on those things to tell you truthfully how close you really are. And you might say, ah, who cares? You know, what's five cents? You know, that's close enough. Close enough for bluegrass. I hate that. I hate to hear that. Um, well, here's what I'll tell you. And, and I, five cents is a lot. It's a lot. Two cents is a lot. One cent is a lot. You can, your ear can detect one or two cents, but if your little tuning gizmo that you clamp on your headstock, if it can only display five or seven and a half, you're just guessing. And your ear can actually do a better job than that machine. Now, I will freely admit that your ear cannot do a better job in a noisy bar with eight people playing banjos around you. <laughs> when you're trying to tune your banjo, uh, sometimes, you know, that thing, uh, close enough is close enough. Let's just get close and get on with it. I, I admit that. I use electronic tuners. I'm not saying I don't. But I am saying that you cannot, your ear can perceive differences in pitch better than the typical display on a tuning device can display. That doesn't mean the tuning device can't detect it. I'm sure the in, internal circuitry of, of that device, let's say that little device, you're playing an A and it's A440. The tuning device is quite capable of sensing very, very small minor deviations from that note. The question is, can it display that in some sort of visual form? And most of the ones I've looked at cannot. That's where these strobe tuners and these virtual strobe tuners attempt to correct that. Because through some uh, display antics, they can show very, very minor pitch deviations. I won't go into a whole bunch of reviews of, of tuning devices, but I've tried a lot of different tuners over the years. And I've got a couple of favorites, which... I won't, I won't go into here, but what I want, the point I'm trying to make is that your ear is more sensitive to tuning discrepancies or tuning accuracy than is usually available in the, the relatively low precision of the output display of most little electronic tuners. Okay, so enough about that. Now let's talk about another thing. Equal temperament. If you have um, if you have played a fretted instrument, you have played in a an equal temperament world, and I want to tell you what more or less what equal temperament is, because the standard today, turn the pages on my notes here, the standard today, as I said, is A four forty, and all the other notes are derived based upon that. And we use a system called equal temperament. But that has not always been the case. Just like A440 has not always been the case. Equal temperament, in a little nutshell, is to take an octave. Let, first of all, let me tell you what an octave is. If you take A440, and it's, it's vibrating at 440 cycles per second, and you divide that in two, you will get... 220. So you just set something in motion at 220 and it's going to sound almost exactly the same as 440 
but lower? Well, they're both A notes. If you walk up to a piano and you, you play all the A's on it, you got seven of them. Each one of those that you play, the frequency doubles as you go up. And it's divided by two as you come down. It's the simplest musical ratio. It's a two-to-one ratio. The upper note is twice the rate of vibration as the lower note. And they merge into one another seamlessly. And your brain perceives them as more or less the same pitch, although it puts them on a different plane. But we call them both A. 110 is an A. 220 is an A. 440 is an A. 880 is an A. And they function like A's in our mind. The reason they fit together so nicely is because they divide into each other nice and even. And, and you, could, you could demonstrate this if you can pat on your leg twice on your left leg. And every time you do that, only pat once on your right leg. So you pat together. And then a second time on your left leg. So it's like this. My right hand was proceeding at half the speed of my left hand. This takes place in a bluegrass band. The bass plays one note. And while he does that, the guitar player plays two. The, the bass goes boom. And the guitar player goes boom, chick. Boom, chick. And he's going boom, boom. And if they're lined up, they sound good together. The banjo player then jumps in and plays four notes during that same time period. So the bass player is hitting once. The guitar player is hitting twice. And the banjo player is hitting four times. Or a mandolin player playing lead. Four times. And everything lines up because their first note lines up with everything. They're evenly divisible. That's the way these octaves are lined up. And that's why they sound um, in harmony with each other. An octave is a very simple harmony. It's doubling of the frequency. That's sort of where the simplicity ends. Now, if you go back to the ancient Greeks and Pythagoras in particular, read up on their musical system and that was the idea I'm going to way oversimplify here that these ratios and, and they were not measuring the frequencies like 440, 220, 110 they, they were doing it by measuring the physical length of a vibrating string they weren't yet doing the math and they didn't have ways to detect, you know, the difference between 440 cycles per second and 441. But they were measuring the string. And if you took a string and plunked a note on it and then divided the string in half, made that string half the length and plunked the note on it, you got an octave. They were both A. You had low A and high A. So they determined the ratio by physically measuring the length of the string without changing the tension of the string. So you just take a string and you just stretch it between two things and tune it up until it's making a plunky note and then divide it in half, maybe by putting a fret there. Bing! And now you got an octave. So they came up with a two-to-one ratio in length for an octave. And they figured out that the fifth was a two-to-three ratio. And they devised the ratio for a musical fourth and also a third and very quickly i don't want to bog down in the this could get insanely deep but let's let's picture a c scale that's the white keys on a piano and it goes from c up to c and the notes are c d e f g a b and then you back to c the low c and the high c that's an octave from c up to g C, D, E, F, G. That's five notes. That's the fifth. That interval, play a C and a G together. That's an interval called the fifth. And you can reach that note by, 
if we think about frequency, using a 3 to 2 ratio. Now there's also the fourth. You can go up to the fourth note, C, D, E, F. You play C and F together, that's a fourth. If you go C, D, E, and play C and E together, that is a musical third. So they measured these strings, and they, they came up with these numerical ratios in terms of string length that would result in a perfect fifth, a perfect fourth, and a perfect third. And for a long time, musicians tried to use those. They tried to play using perfect fifths, perfect fourths, and perfect thirds. The Pythagorean method, the ancient Greek method of tuning. But there's a little problem, a flaw in the slaw. And without it, there would be no need for piano tuners in the world. Here's the basic problem. And when I get done blabbing about all this, I'm going to recommend a book to you. Which, actually, the Braid, uh, William Braid White piano book will fully explain this. You could just go to that. Buy yourself one on eBay. I'm sure there's the, uh, like the grandson of some piano tuner who kicked the bucket is selling off all his stuff in the book. I'm sure you can buy it on eBay. Here's the basic problem. And, and I'm going to put this in a bluegrass context in a minute because it shows it rears its ugly head in the bluegrass world. But here's the problem. The distance of the octave is so utterly simple. It's a doubling of the frequency or it's a doubling of the length of the string. If you look at your instrument and you measure from the nut to the bridge, and I'm just going to pick a number, let's say that's 20 inches. Divide that in half and look at the 10-inch mark. Be at the halfway point, and you will be right at the one-octave point. It'll be the 12th fret on your banjo. The 12th fret, when you fret a string at the 12th fret, it is exactly the halfway point, theoretically, of the length of the whole string. So if you plunk your third string on a banjo and it's a G, and you play it at the 12th fret, you get a high G. That's the octave. And you want those two to be in tune. People monkey around with their bridges and they try to get that 12th fret to sound like the open string. They want their high octave to sound you know, in tune with a low octave. That's called setting your intonation. Okay, so we want good in-tune octaves. All right. But we also want in-tune fifths and fourths and thirds. And we could say minor thirds, seconds, sixths, minor sixths. But let's just keep it with fifths and fourths and thirds. The most basic Pythagorean-derived uh, intervals. We want those to be in tune, too. We want our cake and eat it, too. And here's the problem. If I take an octave... We'll go to the piano keyboard from C up to C. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. We play the two C's together. That's an octave and we got it in tune. Our octave sounds good. Our high note doesn't sound flat or sharp. They sound together because their frequencies divide into each other. It's two to one. So we got a good octave and we want to maintain that. Then we tune our fifth from C up to G. We want that to sound perfect. Well, if you go from the, the G back up to the C, you have a fourth. Every octave is a combination of a fifth interval and a fourth. You can put the fifth on the bottom and have the fourth on the top, but you, a musical interval of a fifth plus a fourth equals an octave. You hope. You could have the fourth on the bottom. You could go C, D, E, F. That's a fourth. And then go from F up to C. That's a fifth. So in the space of one octave, you can fit a fifth and a fourth together. But here's the problem. If you tune the fifth perfectly in tune, and you tune the fourth perfectly in tune, and you put them together, they don't fit in the space of the octave. 
not perfectly. Something's got to give. It's imagine you have, you're building something and you have a 12 inch space and you want to fit these two other parts into that space. And so you make one the length of a fifth, and you make one the length of a perfect fourth, and you measure them independently. And then you put those two blocks together, the fifth and the fourth block, and you try to shove it in, the, and it won't fit. That's a problem. Let's make it even worse. Let's tune the fifth perfectly and tune the octave perfectly. Now we have to change our fourth. It is not going to fit. Well, let's say, okay, well, we want the octave to be good. We want the fourth to be perfect. Well, now the fifth won't fit. No matter what you do, all three do not agree. Mathematically, they do not agree. You can't have a perfect fifth and a perfect fourth and a perfect octave. They don't coexist. And that really aggravated a lot of people throughout the Middle Ages and, and perhaps even today. They wanted it to fit. They wanted there to be this mathematical precision to the universe. And music would represent that. And uh, maybe God was just playing a joke on everybody and made it so that it doesn't work quite so nicely. You cannot put a fourth, perfect fourth, and a perfect fifth in the space of a perfect octave. You can take a perfect fifth and put a stack on top of it a perfect fourth if you sacrifice your octave. It's going to be wrong or slightly out of tune. Same goes for thirds. If you take that C major scale, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, and you go from C to E, that's a third. Now, if you go from that E up a third, you end up on G sharp. That's a third. Then you go from G sharp up to the high C, and that's a third. You can fit three thirds in the octave. Well, no, you can't. They don't fit. That's the problem. They don't fit. Not those perfectly derived um, Pythagorean thirds. They don't fit. And, and listen, a perfect fifth sounds so good. A perfect fourth sounds so beatless and pure and rich. And a, a true perfect third is rich. But guess what? The world we live in, this world of equal temperament and fretted 12 frets to the octave instruments, we never hear those things. <laughs> because we use equal temperament. And here's the true meaning of equal temperament. We're going to make them fit. We're going to cram, we're going to take a crowbar to some of these intervals and we're just going to cram them in there. And we're going to make all of the intervals Except the octave. We're going to maintain the purity of the octave. And we're going to cram everything else in there, stretch them or squeeze them, and make them fit. That's equal temperament. It's a compromise. And equal temperament was, essentially you could say equal temperament is to be evenly out of tune throughout the 12-note chromatic scale and not have any note particularly too disagreeable or horrible. But when equal temperament arrived on the scene as a solution to this problem, there were, there were people screaming and yanking their hair out in wads uh, that this was an affront to the gods, and we can't do this. And there's still a little bit of that going on, but I think it's pretty much been settled you buy an electronic tuner, that thing is pre-programmed in equal temperament. So we're kind of stuck in equal temperament right now. And your frets laid out on your instrument are arranged in equal temperament. So that means that your fifths are not truly perfect. Your fourths are not truly perfect. And your thirds certainly are not perfect. And... For mandolin players, uh, in my book, The Mandolin Handbook, this will be my one plug for this episode, I dedicate a lot of space in this book talking about tuning. And I have a little section back there on page 74, some comments on the science of tuning. So if you're a mandolin player, you might want to take a look at my book, The Mandolin Handbook, in it 
and this is an approximation. I discuss all this stuff in more detail here. But here are the approximate beat rates, and I should tell you what a beat is, first of all. If I tune a string to A440, let's say my two A strings on the mantle, and I tune one of them to A440, and I tune the other one to A441, and I play them together, they're, you're going to hear a pulse, a strength, an amplitude pulse. When those two frequencies line up, they reinforce each other and become a little stronger, and then they veer away from each other. They're not in phase any longer. When they come in phase, you hear a little strengthening, and then they go out of phase. And because one is at 440 and the other is at 441, you will hear a beat rate, a wah, 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 at one beat per second. If you've got one tuned at 439 and one 440, you're going to hear one per second beat. If you got one at 440 and one at 446, you're going to hear six beats per second, and that's faster. Now, in my experience, the human ear can begin to detect beats. You know, when you get to about two beats per second, the average person can easily hear them. One is pretty slow. Uh, but two, you're, you're hearing it. It's wah, 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 wah. And then it gets faster and faster up to, say, 10. You know, wah, 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 That sort of beating speed. Well, guess what? In the middle of a piano, or roughly the range, the, the range, mid-range tones, like for a guitar, an octave would be, or a, a mandolin would be higher octave. But let's just say for a guitar... The unisons, that's, you know, two notes the same, will have zero beats. Octaves will have zero beats. And I'm talking about in equal temperament in the world we live in today. Octaves will be tuned beatless. Thirds, in the center of a piano or roughly the guitar range, thirds, that beautiful C and E note played together, beat 10 beats per second. A fourth... That's from C to F. You play those together, they beat at one beat per second. And the fifth, that's from C up to G, play those two notes together, they beat at about 0.8 beats per second. So the thirds are beating like crazy. The fourths are beating a nice steady one beat per second, and the fifths a hair slower. And what's interesting, those beats double in speed for every octave. You go up an octave, all those beat rates double. You go down an octave, and the beat rates get slower. And there's sort of a, a tolerance in the human ear for you like them pure, and as they get a little faster and a little faster, you begin to say in your mind, that's out of tune. And then you go beyond that where the beats become so fast that you begin to say, you don't, you don't call it out of tune. You start thinking, that's a different note. So you start with, these are the same notes, and they're in tune. You start to modify one of them. Ooh, that, uh, that note's out of tune. That's a, But if it gets out of tune far enough, you say, well, those are two different notes. And in this equal temperament world, pretty much all the intervals are beating at some kind of a rate. We don't play in that beautiful, pure, Pythagorean world of pure tuning. We just don't. So that makes tuning difficult. So let me explain why, just one example of that in the bluegrass world. And before I do that, there's instantly a conflict going on because fretted instruments like mandolin, banjos, and guitar, and electric bass, fretted electric basses, their frets are laid out in equal temperament. They tune with their Korg tuner or their snark or whatever, and they're tuned to the same standard, and they're playing in equal temperament. The fiddle, the upright bass, the dobro, and all the singers, they're not locked into that system. If they want to sing, if you have two voices singing and they want to sing a perfect fourth, a beatless, perfect Pythagorean fourth, they can. But they're going to not match the instruments. So you could say, well, we're, everybody's forced into this because the fretted people have to be in equal temperament, so everybody else has to. But you don't have to. 
your fiddle and your bass and your dobro, especially the dobro. He can just slide around. He can tune each note individually by ear as he plays. I I do that. I, If you're not doing that, you, you probably sound out of tune. So you got a mixed world. You got this equal temperament standard, but these instruments with no frets don't have to abide by it. Not all the time. So when that, when that bluegrass trio comes in singing that fantastic chord, they may actually be singing perfect fifths and perfect fourths. And your little old banjo over there is slightly imperfect compared to them. I'm just telling you about this. It's, it's interesting. Now let's talk about the dreaded B string. Uh, everybody that's ever tuned a guitar or a banjo has normally has trouble tuning that B string. Can't make up their mind where to put it. It seems like you got to tune it in the wrong place. Now I'm saying put away the electronic tuner and you just, let's say a banjo, you, you're tuning your banjo to a G major chord. So you've got, you know, G, D, B, and you want, you make them all sound great. And then you play a C chord and it sounds wrong. That B sounds wrong. Then you play an E chord and, oh man, everything sounds wrong. You see this all the time on a guitar, a guy tune that B string and strum a G chord and that B string sounds perfect. Then you play a C chord and the B string doesn't seem perfect. Play an E chord and it seems a mile off. So you tune that B string so that your E chord sounds good. Then you go back to G and it sounds completely off again. It's like you can't seem to get that B string to agree. And that's because your natural tendency is to put that B string perfectly where it belongs, the, the old Pythagorean beatless intervals. But then you play these other chords and it doesn't work. But if you'll tune to the tuner and put the B where the tuner tells you to put it, you're going to be a little bit off for your G and a little bit off for your C and a little bit off for your E, but not so terrible that you can't play all those chords. That's what equal temperament does. It means you're equally out of tune on all the intervals. It's a compromise. Anyway, hopefully I have not blown your mind here. Just talking kind of off the top of my head. I want to suggest a book. There's a fascinating book written by Stuart Isikoff called Temperament. How Music Became a Battleground for the Great Minds of Western Civilization. This is a good book. I think it's had a couple of editions. It's a fun book. If you want to read some of the backstory and the history behind the battles over temperament. Anyway, I suggest that book. If I can find links to them on Amazon, I'll put those on the show notes. And for any mandolin players, you might scope out my book, The Mandolin Handbook, which I dedicate a lot of information in there about tuning. I guess the last thing I would say is that tuning is a lifetime quest. And those of you who uh, just clip the little tuner on and adjust your strings until the light, you know, turns red or green, whatever. Hey, that's better than nothing. But I, I, I'm just saying it's, it's a little deeper than that. And sometimes there's a false confidence generated by that machine saying, you're in tune, you know. Because the truth is, we're never in tune. We're never perfectly in tune. Not in this world of equal temperament. There's no such thing as tuning perfection. And that's interesting because we're always striving for perfection, but there is no such thing as perfection. Back when I was in the printing business, that was one of the things I used to always say is that you can do the best job you can possibly do on printing this project. But if you sit down and look at it and really examine it closely, you're going to find flaws. That's the nature of life. There's little flaws. And the question always as a printer to me was, is this acceptable or not acceptable? But as far as perfection, you can just forget that. Same goes for playing your solo on old Joe Clark. There is no such thing as perfection. There is near perfection. 
But the question is, is it acceptable or not? You know, I don't think I've ever played anything perfectly. I've never made a perfect arrowhead. I've never brewed the perfect batch of beer. If I had, I would stop, you know, <laughs> once you've achieved perfection. But that's the fun thing about music. There is no absolute perfection. Sometimes it feels like it, and boy, that feels good. But it's hard to duplicate. Anyway, same goes for tuning. Hopefully, uh, I didn't bore you to tears with all this talk of tuning. Scopathy's books, Temperament, and the old William Braid White Piano Book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Even if you don't own a piano, it's a great book. Great little school in the, the technology of music. And, of course, Malin Handbook for you Malin players. Okay, that's enough blah, blah, blah for this episode. Y'all have a good one, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Thank you.